Well, good evening. Forgive me for that. If you have a Bible with you this evening, I suspect that you do. The book of Ecclesiastes is where we'll be, continuing from our study on Sunday morning. Some time ago, I read an article about the different stages or phases in life, and the author of that article identified and described 11 different phases or stages of life. Allow me to read them for you. Perhaps you can identify where you fall. The first stage or phase of life, of course, is birth. Second is infancy. And then he categorized early childhood, middle childhood, late childhood, three different stages or phases of life. Next came adolescence, then adulthood, then midlife. After midlife was maturity. <laughs> now notice maturity doesn't come until after midlife, or maybe it's just a, a nice way of saying you're getting old, right? And then was the elderly, and then death, which in my opinion is not a stage of life because d when you die, you're dead, and, and there's no part of life there. But the stages of life, however you might identify them or categorize them, they can be a great comfort to the parent of a misbehaved child. They're just going through a phase, you understand. Or it can be also a, an excuse of the dysfunctional adult. We might say, well, it's, it's, just a, it's just a phase I'm going through right now. How many of you are going through a phase in your life right now? How many of you are married to someone going through a phase in your life? <laughs> be careful, a few of you. We go through a phase or a stage, and I found it interesting as I read each of those uh, descriptions of the stages or the phases of life that the author described the adolescent stage as a time of experimentation. And it was explained that young men or young women are looking to find themselves and discover fulfillment in their lives, and consequently, they believe that if they can smoke it or drink it or shoot it, or feel it, some experience will give them fulfillment and they will find themselves to be happier than they currently are. In fact, adolescents are often willing to try anything in quest for fulfillment with just perhaps a bit of peer pressure. Try it, you'll like it. And, and often adolescents do that. However, we shouldn't be too hard on on teenagers because as adults, we're not necessarily any better. We're just a little more sophisticated. And for the adults, we call it a bucket list. And a bucket list is a list of things that we want to do or things that we want to try before we die, experiences that we want to have so that somehow our life will be complete after we try that, experience that, or accomplish that thing. For some adults, it's getting married. For some, it's getting married and having children, or getting married and having children and buying a house, or taking a cruise, or traveling the world, or writing a book, or retiring in style. And whether you're an adolescent, or whether you're an adult, whether you're an adolescent experimenting with the pleasures of life, or whether you're an adult going through a phase, a midlife crisis, 
For me, I, I want a yellow Corvette, and someday I might just drive home with a yellow Corvette. And, but why? Well, I, I think that would be, that would be fulfilling to, to maybe have that. Really? Solomon went through a stage or a phase in his life, and it was a stage or a phase that is not unique to any, any age of life, but rather to all of us at all times. And Solomon experimented with different things, really asking the question, what can I try that will fulfill me? And as I've titled our second study here this evening, with that interrogative, with that question in your booklet, what can I try that will fulfill me? Let's pause briefly for prayer before we go to God's word, shall we? Lord, we confess that we are people that are always wanting something more or something else. And we are in pursuit of happiness with some substance, some experience, some relationship. And God, we know that this is not unique to us, but it's common to man. I pray that you would instruct us this evening by your spirit, from your word, that we might gain perspective the perspective of, of King Solomon, for I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. By way of introduction, allow me to, to remind us of our study on Sunday morning, remind us of what the preacher Solomon, Ecclesiastes 1, verse number 1, the, the preacher Solomon said to us in chapter number 1, and he said, everything in life is meaningless or it's vanity, what I described, if you'll remember, as Soap bubbles. And you remember the, the soap bubbles. Soap bubbles are, are colorful and they're translucent and they, they float and, and we reach out to, to grasp them. But as soon as we, we lay hold of a bubble, we lose it. And it's temporary. And its substance is nothing. And while they attract our attention and they capture our, our imagination, they flow upward and away and we either lose them or if we grab them, we kill them. They last for a short time. And that's really the meaning of the Hebrew word havel, which, which is translated vanity in our Bibles. And in, in Solomon's quest for meaning of life, Solomon looked at nature, remember? And he found it to be meaningless, like soap bubbles, just recurring cycles over and over again in verses 4 through 8. Then Solomon looked at history, and he found there to be nothing new under the sun, just the same old, same old, been there and done that in verses 9 through 11. Then Solomon looked to philosophy in chapter 1 verse 13 but he was only left with sorrow and grief in, in, in spite of all of that philosophy in verses 17 and 18 and Solomon then is lamenting the emptiness of life in his pursuit of, of something to fulfill him and this evening I'd like us to, to retrace our steps a little bit to the final point of chapter 1 where Solomon is lamenting the emptiness and the, no, the nothingness of life. He's experimenting to try to find what would fulfill him in life. Chapter 1, verse 13, And I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. You might fill in your notes, number one, the test. The test of intellectualism intellectualism, and, and this test makes sense to me, because God had given Solomon great wisdom and great knowledge, and if anyone was 
qualified to pursue intellectualism. It was Solomon, for God had appeared to Solomon and said to Solomon in 2 Chronicles, ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said to God, you have shown great mercy on David my father and have made me king in his place. Now give me wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people for who can judge this great people of yours. 1 Kings chapter 4 explains that Solomon then became the wisest man in all the world. And so it makes sense to me that Solomon would try intellectualism to find fulfillment in his life. Also makes sense to me that Solomon would try this because this isn't just an, an ancient matter that was unique to Solomon, but because it's common to us today. Many people try education or intellectualism. In fact, education today in our culture is considered to be the solution for so many of our cultural crises. For example, children, if we just educate the children, or prisoners, if we just educate or rehabilitate those who are incarcerated, that'll fix our problems. For that reason, there is an ever-increasing and inordinate amount of money spent on education and information in our country. In fact, politicians are even now beginning to promise free college for, for our citizens. But if you look at verse 13, I, I set my heart to seek and to search out wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of men by which they may be exercised, or if you, you carry the New American Standard, they may be afflicted with, you see. Verse 14, I have seen all the works that are done under heaven, and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be numbered. I communed with my heart saying, he's, he's talking to himself, look, I have attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind or as we're, we're using this week, grasping for soap bubbles for in much wisdom is grief and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And so it is that human wisdom or intellect or knowledge or education or understanding doesn't satisfy. That's why we say ignorance is bliss. Any blissful people here tonight? Blissful? Anybody married to a blissful per person? Ignorance is, is blissed. Ernest Hemingway said, happiness in intelligent people is the rarest thing I know. And so as Solomon learns and gains understanding and becomes wiser and wiser, he's actually finding himself to be emptier and emptier. Now, I'm not discouraging the pursuit of education. In fact, my ministry includes a grade school and a graduate school. You see, you, you can go to kindergarten or you can get a PhD in, in our ministry, but and, and I would never d discourage that. However, it will not satisfy the emptiness of your hearts if you simply pursue information or knowledge or academia or intellectualism. In fact, in chapter 12, verse 12, Solomon would say that much study is wearisome to the flesh. But 
if you are interested in attending Central Seminary, I have a special family camp offer for you just this week, a free class for all of you. And wait, there's more. If you buy now, I'll double your order, right? And, and you can learn so much, and then maybe you'll be fulfilled. No, don't. Don't do that. And so the test of intellectualism, a second of Solomon's experiments in this phase or stage of life was to try the, the pursuit of, of pleasure. You see it in chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with, with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure. But surely this also was vanity. And that's number two, the test of hedonism. There was the test of intellectualism first. And now the test of hedonism. And hedonism is that which gratifies or satisfies oneself. And really hedonism is the genius behind marketing, and whether it's clothes or cars or cosmetics or, or cruises. The appeal is to our desire for creature comforts, to enjoy ourselves with pleasure from, from some product. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting that a, a warm drink on a cold night is a bad thing. I'm not suggesting that a a soft bed at the end of a long day is a, a bad thing. I'm suggesting that we torment, I'm not suggesting that we torment ourselves with inconvenience or, or hardship, but know that personal pleasure is like soap bubbles. It's vanity, he says there at the end of verse number one, chapter two, verse number one. Surely this also was vanity, and it doesn't last. And it may not have much substance. And, and really here, Solomon is going to cite a couple different points of pleasure that he has tried. And the first is laughter. That would be subpoint letter A, laughter. And I, and I would point you to verse number 2, chapter 2, verse 2. I said of laughter, madness. And of mirth, what does it accomplish? Now, maybe Solomon's court gestures were, were really bad, or maybe the ancient comedians weren't very funny. That's not what he's saying. And neither is he saying that there's no value in laughter. We know that, that Solomon extolled the value of laughter in the book of Proverbs. He says that laughter or a merry heart does good like medicine. One of the benefits uh, that I've already experienced this week with you here at family camp is the opportunity to laugh together. And that's good medicine. But when Solomon calls laughter madness in verse 2, he's describing the frivolous, superficial, cynical, uh, sarcastic laughter over, over sin, I believe. Bible scholar and commentator Derek Kidner says this. He says, the madness indicates moral perversity rather than mental oddity. And, and here, here's what he, he, he's saying is that maybe a dirty joke is funny to the perversity of our flesh, but it doesn't accomplish anything for true fulfillment. There's a moment maybe. You watch a comedian on late night television who tells a joke and then you go to bed. But what does that do for the fulfillment of your soul? Verse number three, I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh. This is the hedonism. To gratify my flesh, to pleasure myself with, with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives 
And so the test of hedonism for Solomon was laughter, entertainment, amusement, and then also, letter B, was wine in verse 3. Wine. And some think because of this that Solomon was a party animal who was always drinking all the time. But I don't think so. Solomon was too smart for that. And he even qualified his drinking here in verse number 3, if you're looking at it, as being governed by wisdom. Oh, okay. Solomon was a responsible drinker. He was just a social drinker, perhaps. He was trying to see if he could lay hold on folly like everyone else in the world, but it was like trying to grab hold of a soap bubble that disappeared. Folks, I would declare to you that drinking alcohol for pleasure is as foolish as jumping out of an airplane to enjoy the breeze. Do you know what I mean? You may enjoy the breeze, but you fall to your death. And you may find a moment of pleasure, but it will not end well. And it's for that reason that Solomon issued so many warnings against drinking through the book of Proverbs. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And for that reason, the Bible is very clear that alcohol is not for kings or priests or pastors or deacons, anyone with a leadership responsibility. Therefore, I would argue that it doesn't serve anyone well to drink. And I would counsel you against it. But that was the experiment in this stage or phase of life for Solomon. This was the test of hedonism. What substance exists or what entertainment can I find that will bring me some satisfaction and pleasure? He tried all these things to gratify his flesh. I like how one man has paraphrased verse number three. I've copied it for you there in your notes. I resolved, and this is, this is a summary of what Solomon is saying in the first person. I resolved to cheer my body with wine. Still seeking after wisdom, mind you, and to lay hold on revelry, that, that's late night parties with alcohol, in order to see whether this might yield the good I was seeking. Perhaps since life is so short, folly and revelry might be the meaning of it all, but no. The test failed. And certainly we can observe even in our contemporary culture those that pursue the pleasure and the gratification of their flesh are still left empty and wanting. Look at verse 4. I made my works great. I built myself houses. I planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards. I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. And notice how many times he says myself in verses 4 through 6. This week I'm, I'm using the New King James. I know you carry a variety of English Bible translations. But, but so often he's saying in verses 4 through 6, myself. I made my works great. I built myself houses. I made myself gardens. I made myself water pools in verse number six. And, and we get the picture. The projects in verses four through six are not public works projects, but rather private works. And Solomon is not building a community for those in Jerusalem, but rather he's building a compound for himself. Look at verse seven. Verse 7, I acquired male and female servants and servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and the provinces. And I acquired male and female singers and the delights of the sons of men and musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great 
and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from my labor. I deserved it. Because I worked so hard, I deserved to benefit from these things. But, verse 11, then I looked on all the works that my hands had done, all the labor which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. I would suggest, number three, the test of materialism. There's a test of intellectualism, the test of hedonism. Number three, the test of materialism. First Kings 10, if we were to go there, reports how that the queen of Sheba visited Solomon. And this is what the queen of Sheba said about what she saw with Solomon. The queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on the table, the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters and their apparel, his cupbearers. Then she said to the king, and this is what the Bible tells us, it is a true report which I heard in my own land about you, the queen of Sheba says to Solomon. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw with my own eyes, and indeed the half was not told me, your prosperity exceeds the fame that I heard. And so Solomon's reputation in the world as being the wealthiest and the wisest king was in fact true. So different people have done the math to try to measure Solomon's net worth. And they've pegged it at $100 billion in today's terms. There are a few, a few individuals over the course of human history that have become billionaires to that to that point, the Warren Buffetts and the Bill Gates and such. Others have countered that if Solomon had 700 wives under his care, that would have drained him pretty quickly, right? But a uh, <laughs> but, uh, hundred billion dollars. He had it all, folks. I've sometimes reasoned with the Lord. I said, Lord, I don't need a hundred billion in fact, I don't even need one billion. Lord, if you would just give me 10 million, I think, I think 10 million would be, would be good. And Lord, I will, I will be a wise steward of that 10 million. And he hasn't taken me up on that offer. But can you imagine the materialism and the wealth? But Solomon is asking the same questions, even in all of his affluence that, that we're asking today. In chapter 1, what is the meaning of life? That was Solomon in chapter 1. Now in chapter 2, he's asking, what can I try that will fulfill me? God, I'm going through a stage. I'm going through a phase. I'm experimenting and testing different things. I need to find something that will satisfy. Look at verse 12. Then I turned myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the, the man do who su succeeds the king? Only what he has already done. This is the same thing from back in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. There's nothing new under the sun. Same old, same old. History is just going to keep repeating itself over and over again. Verse 13, then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. Okay, we get that. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I myself perceived that the same event happens to them all. Okay, now, now catch this. Solomon's concluding that wisdom is better than folly 
Because the wise man can see the world around him, while the foolish man is basically walking around blind or in darkness. However, the end event is the same for the wise man and the foolish man. And what is that, verse 15? So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, so it also happens to me. And why was I then more wise than I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever, since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die? How does a wise man die? End of verse 16. As the fool. In the very same way, when you're dead, you're dead. It doesn't matter if you are wise or a fool because you're dead. And no matter how much pleasure that you can enjoy during the course of your life, no matter how much learning you can gain, how much material you can amass, you're, you're dead. And so I'm going to call this number four in your notes, and there's, there's a typo there. It should really be chapter two, verses 12 through 16. Forgive me for that. Not chapter one, verse 12 to 16, but here as we've just read in chapter two. This is the test of number four, the test of absurdism. Absurdism, you say, now Pastor Matt, you made that up. What, what is absurdism? And, and no, it's a, it's a real thing. It's the idea, and, and you can Google this and you can read about it. It's the idea in logic that, um, I'm, I'm sorry, it's the idea that there is no logic in the world because in the end, we all die. And the end is the end. In spite of who you are and what you've done, it's just absurd. The wise king will die. The fool will die. And what difference does it make if I'm wise or if I'm a fool? Because death is the great equalizer in the world. And when we all die, it makes everything that happened in our lives just really absurdity. Absurdism. Verse 17. Therefore, because of, because of these tests, because of these experiments that, that Solomon has worked through, Therefore, verse 17, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. You say, Pastor Matt, this is, a, this is a pretty dark message. It's a pretty depressing study. Preaching from Ecclesiastes is not going to gain or retain a crowd why don't you just tell us how to be healthy and wealthy and assure us that we can live our best life now? You familiar with that, Joel Osteen? Popular book, Your Best Life Now. Folks, if you're living your best life now, think about this. If you're living your best life now, what does life after life look like for you? You're going to hell if this is your best life now. This is not our best life now. And I could only stand before you and, and give you a prosperity gospel message if we lived in bizarro world. But we don't live in bizarro world. We live in the real world under the sun. And this is the reality of man's fallen existence in a sin-cursed world when trying everything as an experiment to find fulfillment. I can repeat that. This 
is not our best life now, but to most people, it's their only life because the reality of man's fallen existence in a sin-cursed world is that we try everything as an experiment to find fulfillment, and we're left wanting. What can I try? What else can I try that will fulfill me? But it gets worse for Solomon, verse 18. Then I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will rule over all my labor in which I toiled and in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. Therefore, I turned my heart and despaired of all the labor in which I had toiled under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Solomon hates now all that he's accomplished and accumulated because he's going to die and he's going to leave it to whoever, his kids or his grandkids or whatever. Verse 22, for what has man for all his labor and for the striving of his heart with which he has toiled under the sun, for all his days are sorrowful, his work burdensome, even in the night his heart takes no rest. This also is vanity. And Solomon here, I'll I'll tell you what Solomon is doing. He is employing a literary and rhetorical device to create for the reader or for the hearer, remember, the preacher, the Kohelet, from chapter 1, verse 1, he's gathered together an assembly to hear what he's saying. And so as he speaks to them, he's creating this tension or this depression, and he means for us to share in his despair before he gives us an answer. And here it is, if you're ready for it, verse 24 Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. Now, now follow the, the, the reason here. The best a man can do for himself is to eat and drink and be merry. And Solomon is the poster boy for this because he is the king, verse 25, for who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I... As a king, as a multi-billionaire monarch, he's enjoying the luxuries of life. But we miss something at the end of verse 24. At the end of verse 24, the eating and the drinking, the simple pleasures in life, are gifts from whom? From God. And this is significant because God has only been mentioned one time back in chapter 1, verse 13... And there, when Solomon cites God, he blames God for being part of the problem. God has afflicted him or afflicted men with trying to find the meaning of life. Chapter 1, verse 13. But now, Solomon is is introducing God into the equation and he acknowledges God, which is a novel idea, right? His worldview is changing here, and he's recognizing that every good and perfect gift actually comes from above, and God is the one who actually gives us these simple pleasures of life. So don't check out just yet. This is really important to catch. In verse 26, Solomon observes that God gives life fulfillment to some and not to others. Verse 26, for God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight, but to the sinner 
he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give him who is good before God. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. And, and um, there's a big difference now between those who are good in God's sight and the sinner or the wicked. Remember this lit- literary device or this rhetorical device that Solomon is, he's, he's winding us tight. He's creating this tension and he's going to let it go. He's winding us tight and we object and we say, are you saying that God is playing favorites? That God is, is playing favorites with good people over bad people? Well, we know first that, that we are all sinners. There is none righteous, no, not one. There's none that does good, Romans chapter 3. We're all bad people. We know that the Bible is, is so clear that none of us gain standing or favor with God by good works. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but it's according to his mercy he saves us. Nevertheless, Solomon is identifying two categories of people, those who live under the favor of God's grace and mercy and those who rebelliously persist in their sin. And I'm going to call this the test, number five, and you need to help me with this. I, I couldn't find a parallelism, right? We've got intellectualism and hedonism, you know. So we're going to have to go with this, the test of God's blessing. And perhaps if you can think of a word, an ism word, I can update my notes here for the future. But how can we be found in God's sight, uh, to be found good in God's sight and receive his blessing? And here's the answer. Hebrews 11 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And then calls us to believe that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so in God's mercy and grace, God will bless the believer with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. For in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. We can read in Ephesians chapter 1 that we've obtained an inheritance. And so it is a personal relationship with God, and in through Jesus Christ is what it is to be found good in his sights. Okay? So then positionally, we're found good in God's sights. What of our activity in this life, or what of our life work, what can we do or try to find fulfillment under the sun? It is to live by faith, and to live in obedience to God, which is Solomon's conclusion. We looked at that Sunday morning. Because our home, folks, our home is not under the sun. This is not our best life now. This is temporary. We are pilgrims and sojourners. But rather, we are assured of our eternal home, our heavenly home. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul wrote, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in, in vain. It's not vanity. Your life activity and your life experience and your labor and service is not vanity. We continue in this life. Because we are found good in God's sight through Jesus Christ. I don't know where you're at in life this evening. Maybe you're going through a phase or a stage. Maybe you're an adolescent. Maybe you are one of those mature elderly folks. But wherever you're at, in whatever stage or place, if you are grasping for the soap bubbles 
of experience, relationship, and substance, and entertainment, and education, all of these things. And saying to yourself, what can I try? What else can I try? I've tried everything. And alas, I still find myself to be empty. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and obedience to him, you will have life more abundantly. This is not your best life now. Your best life is in eternity. So don't lay up for yourself treasures on this earth. But rather, set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It's the perspective of Solomon. Let's pray. God in heaven, I ask that you would seal these truths in our minds and our hearts this evening. And God, in one sense, if, if Solomon couldn't sort these matters out, what chance do we have but except it were for Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior? God, I pray for the men and the women that are before me this evening that you would draw them to yourself, that you would give them an appetite for things above, for things future, not for the temporal. Lord, as we look to the future, not just to tomorrow, not just redeeming next week or next month, but Lord, that we would understand that um, faith in Jesus Christ for eternity is the ultimate satisfaction. And may our joy be in you alone, for I pray this in his name. Amen.